Hi everyone, welcome to the Better Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omar Akhtar. In this podcast, I talk with various experts to find better ways of addressing chronic disease. I hope you find this content beneficial. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. John Kim about low-dose naltrexone or LDN. Naltrexone is a prescription medication used conventionally for the treatment of opioid or alcohol addiction. However, in much smaller doses, it has proved to be effective in treating autoimmune and inflammatory conditions of various types as well as chronic pain. It can be a valuable adjunctive therapy in the treatment of these conditions. We discuss everything around LDN. Now let's head over to the episode. Hi, everyone. I'm extremely honored and excited to be speaking with Dr. John Kim today. Dr. Kim is board certified in preventive medicine, medical acupuncture, and integrative medicine. He completed fellowship training in integrative medicine with Dr. Andrew Weil at the University of Arizona. He is currently the medical director of an integrative medicine practice in San Antonio, which provides primary care acupuncture, cranial sacral therapy, and integrative medicine consultations. He's also actively developing and implementing an integrative pain management program. He has extensive knowledge and experience using low-dose naltrexone, which is the topic of our conversation today, and I'm extremely pleased he gave me some of his time to speak with him. So, Dr. Kim, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm very honored to be with you, and I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. It's great to be talking about this very important uh, conversation. So, for people that don't know, um, naltrexone is a medication that's been around, uh, approved for use since 1984 primarily for the treatment of opioid dependence and opioid addiction, as well as alcohol dependence, when it's used in a dosage of about 50 to 150 milligrams. And it goes and it blocks the opioid receptors that we have in our brain. And that is the kind of the primary mainstream use of it. But we are going to be talking about the use of its low dose or ultra low dose. Um, And we'll go into a little bit more of that soon. But I just wanted to uh, ask you first, what are the main conditions that you see low-dose naltrexone being used for? And primarily, what is the research that has gone into the use of this low-dose form of naltrexone? So the research, let's start with research. As you all have described correctly and very accurately, that F- the naltrexone is a opioid receptor antagonist with FDA approval for the doses between 50 milligrams to 150 milligrams for treating opioid addiction. But what we're talking about now is uh, what is referred as low-dose naltrexone, which generally now is about 0.5 milligrams to 4.5 milligrams, although doses can be higher than that or lower than that. And the most common use of low-dose naltrexone is probably in the use of autoimmune disorders. So There's some research in, especially for inflammatory bowel disease, uh, like Crohn's disease, and there are growing evidence because the clinical trials are growing. The uses of LDN is very popular for autoimmune diseases. And then in my practice, I also use it for treating pain, nerve inflammation, and uh, immune modulation. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so when we talk about understanding the mechanism behind how low-dose naltrexone works, we understand for when you're trying to fix uh, opioid dependence and alcohol dependence, it goes and it blocks those receptors and uh, decreases cravings. But what about low-dose naltrexone? Why have we found that to work in, you mentioned autoimmune conditions, but also getting to chronic pain? 
what is so special about this lower dose that we found to be effective at, at treating these conditions? So it's, it's very fascinating for me because one of my experience I had was that I was a Howard Hughes fellow with a department with Dr. Gilman uh, in UT Southwestern with one of his scientists uh, uh, and Dr. Gilman won a Nobel Prize on the receptors and its agonist antagonist and the G protein system. And it has to do with receptors, of course. And again, everyone in the medical industry knows about the binding of the opioid receptors. But the thing is that in real life, um, altraxone not only binds to the opioid receptors, but it also binds to other receptors. And one of them is a toll-like 4 receptor, which is attached to glial cells. And, and if you think about it, the receptors are like switches. So we have many switches in the house and they do different things. And depending what switch is connected to, it turns on printer, it turns on the computer, it turns on the phone, lights, etc. So in the body, depending on what it's connected to, it turns on the different systems. So as far as the receptor is concerned, the glial cells are basically modulate immune system in the nervous system as well as immune immune system. So if you can block the glial cells being activated, the end result is that you're preventing downstream inflammation. And currently, we don't really have great medications to control inflammation, especially in the nerves. And the immune system-wise, we do have tools, but they're very powerful, maybe too powerful, like steroids have a lot of side effects. The immunotherapies that we have or disease-modifying agents for rheumatology is also very, very powerful. And low-dose naltrexone is very unique that it seems to play what we call an adaptogen. Adaptogen means that it restores the balance. Also, it restores balance to the nervous system. It restores balance to the immune system. So even though the mechanism of LDN is an antagonist, for uh, opioid receptor, the and it's also antagonist for receptor. In it, the function of it appears to be that it works to restore balance. And then for the opioid, it, it works a little bit differently in that that in the absence of external opioids like medication, opioid medication, it seems to strengthen the internal endorphin system. Okay. And so it's very fascinating that when you, you know, we talk about it being an antagonist at certain doses, but there's also a concept called hormesis, right? Mm -hmm. Where mm -hmm. you, when you use it at a lower dose, it can mm -hmm. act, actually be a weak agonist. Correct. Are you able to speak right. to this as well? And by agonist, for those who don't know, I, I mean that it can have a stimulatory effect while at a certain dose having a blocking effect. So, you know, that's a very interesting from a physiological perspective. Correct. So in immunology, it's kind of interesting because um, we're very used to the linear response in, in medicine. Uh, it, it's also known as Cartesian logic because it's very predictable. But in reality, if you really study science in a little bit in more depth, you find out that those linear responses are taken or looked at because they are linear, <laughs> because they're predictable. Right. But in nature, actually, if you study it, many, uh, uh, many uh, actions are not straightly linear. We just focus on the areas that's linear. For the 
the idea of hormesis uh, or the theory of it uh, is that where, like you said, that lower doses of antagonists may act as a weak, a weak agonist. So it's supposed to block, but it activates. And I think that for low-dose naltrexone, for the opioid receptor, that it's probably the best thought as similar to weightlifting. And, and it's also the basis of tolerance. So because it's an opioid antagonist, in the beginning, it's going to block the endorphins. Uh, and then what happens is that our body will overcome it. And, and we call that the body will produce more receptors or take away receptors depending on uh, how much uh, stimulation there, uh, it, uh, it, there is out there. So in this case, what happens is that as the body adjusts to the blocking of the opioid receptors, the body creates more receptors so that it's going to be more sensitive. And it seems like also it creates more endorphins. So it's really perfect for patients who are endorphin uh, depleted and the low-dose naltrexone, basically the blockade and increasing the dose of the blockade appears to stimulate the production of endorphins and make the body more sensitive to existing endorphins. So it's kind of the opposite of why like hypertensive medications, you take it and then it seems to work and then you have a honeymoon effect and then it stops working, you go up on the dose at so this is that in reverse. Instead of the tolerance not helping you or being being against, the tolerance actually is on your side. It's fascinating, yeah. And so we ha- we know that you, you mentioned earlier that low-dose naltrexone is taken at about 0.5 or some people can start at 1.5. And so how do you see people taking that? What's the best way if someone had an autoimmune condition or maybe a, a pain condition that they can start with it and I should mention to people that low-dose naltrexone is mainly available uh, in a compounding pharmacy, mm-hmm. right? Because it has to be mm-hmm. compounded. So, you know, we start with a dose of 0.5 milligrams or 1.5 milligrams, and then we gradually go up. So what have you found is the best dosage adjustment as far as that goes? And what is the main side effects that you see either early on or later, if any? So the dose that I recommend actually is uh, 0.1 milligrams or 100 micrograms. There was a time that the field thought that 1.5 was the best to start with. And it's true for the functional individuals. What I found is that at that dose, there's significant side effects in the form of retching, dry heaves, Mm -hmm. or just malaise uh, because you're blocking the endorphins. So uh, I cut it down to 0.5 milligram uh, and about uh, 15 years ago. And I think that slowly it's been adopted as a new standard. And uh, now I start at 100 uh, micrograms. And then if patient, because you can have vivid uh, dreams, if patient had PTSD or have nightmare, I started LDN in the morning so that they will avoid that. Uh, For most people, generally it's taken at night. And LDN also has a, a, a side effect that actually is uh, hypnotic. It's a weak hypnotic without uh, a, a, the side effect being vivid dreams. Mm-hmm. So LDN, actually, I use it as a first-line hypnotic agent as well and because it also calms down the immune system. But as for the dosing, once they overcome the dose, like I have a patient right now who didn't tolerate 100 micrograms. So I had to start her out in 10 micrograms and uh, she's just uh, increased the dose to 20 micrograms. And that person has inflammatory bowel disease. Even at that low dose, uh, the patient just reported to me that her energy is better. So 
really LDN doesn't have a lot of side effects. And part of that is that it's low dose. And I mentioned earlier that you can take it higher. So I have some patients who don't get response until nine milligrams or 12 milligrams. So in those patients, um, you have to read the label and start monitoring the uh, liver functions. Because when you take the naltrexone, that's one of the things that they recommend that you do. Of, of course, dose is still lower. Mm-hmm. So are you finding most people you're starting at 0.5, that 0.1 or to 0.5 range, or is there anyone you actually start higher than 0.5? Or is it function, other than uh, functional individuals? So basically, I start everyone unless they're taking a higher dose. Like I have another patient who has a mystery neurodegenerative condition that's thought to be autoimmune, and the person is uh, wheelchair-bound. And uh, when she's on LDN, she says she's much better. She's able to walk. When I first met her about four years ago, she was fully functional, and then she just kept on losing her functionality, and they, they don't know what it is. But she's got two other autoimmune conditions, so we're using a low-dose naltrexone to kind of slow the descent. And then we just had a conversation about, you know, got to get the correct diagnosis from the, uh, the conventional medicine folks so that we can align the integrative functional medicine treatment to that. So usually no side effects, but if they're endorphin depleted, then you can get a wide variety of uh, symptoms of uh, endorphin deficiency. So not feeling well, wanting nausea, dry heaves. And are you increasing the dose incrementally about every week or two weeks? Yes, as as tolerated. And it's totally clinical. Patients are given a protocol and uh, they are told to double until they have a side effect and back off and go back to the last dose they felt the best. Okay. And so, you know, conventionally we've noted that, or at least most of my use has been up to 4.5 milligrams um, in my use of LDN. Now you're saying that you do have some patients that if they don't find that, that improvement, I try to give them about a three month period, but you're saying that they should go up to higher doses and double the dose perhaps until they get to a dose that works. So after four, um, I don't double the doses. I go to increase by 50%. So four six, nine, and then uh, 12. I see. Okay. And so, and so you do recommend going up until they either see a side effect or a potential benefit. As I said, I haven't seen a side effect with LDN, uh, even, oh, you even at 10 okay. milligrams or 12 milligrams. Okay. Other than the dry heaves and slight no, malaise. Even that is the beginning. Yes. That, uh, okay. it, it, that's the initial side effect. And okay. When, uh, like, I had a patient who is not responding to any treatment uh, for inflammatory bowel disease. So, that patient, even my 100 microgram, it was devastating to her. Uh, she felt fatigued. I see. She couldn't do anything. Uh, and, and fortunately, we had that conversation up front that, that uh, I shared with her. She has choice of starting at like uh, 10 micrograms, one microgram, or 100 microgram. And uh, because I, I suspect that she probably has uh, endorphin deficiency. And the person actually does have it. But now 10 microgram to 20 microgram. A 10 microgram, it didn't do anything for her. But 20 microgram, she says her energy is better. So now we're going to 40 microgram and then from 40 to 50 and then 50 to 100. Okay. And in your patients, do you find that there's a, a time frame with which if they're not getting better, you would get them off the LDN like maybe three months or? Yeah, I think three months is excellent. Three to six months is an excellent. I think that, you know, we are uh, in the business of 
art of medicine, especially integrative functional um, and holistic medicine. And uh, we, we are more dependent on patient response rather than a cookbook protocol. So three to six months, I think, is an excellent time frame. Okay. And now shifting a little bit towards pain, because you mentioned that yes. earlier, uh, that, that primarily uh, the, most of the research has shown that it's good for autoimmune conditions. Correct. And so what is the history behind using it for pain and where does it stand right now? Because we have so many pain medicine patients and also pain medicine clinics out there that, I mean, this is, they don't seem to use this. And so I think that on a larger scale, they would benefit from uh, low-dose naltrexone quite a bit. But there isn't that use of it, despite the growing amounts of people with pain. And so, can you speak to that, the the science behind it, specifically sure. for pain? For me, it happened by accident. I had a patient with uh, uh, post herpetic neuralgia, and which is one of the worst pains you can have. And uh, that person was a pilot and was saying that he couldn't, even though he's wearing silk underwear, it was just burning. Uh, so he was going to give up flying, and he responded well to acupuncture, but I read a paper saying that acupuncture can be enhanced by LDN because they share the same Mm -hmm. pathway. So I prescribed LDN and the patient never didn't come back except for LDN refill. So then I I, I got a a clue that it's not acupuncture, it's LDN. So when I did research on it, there's a study, uh, there are a series of studies by uh, Stanford uh, professor Jared Younger who showed that LDN actually can improve fibromyalgia and that in the selective group of fibromyalgia, actually it seems like ESR um, is some a prognostic marker, meaning that fibromyalgia should be, in theory, non-inflammatory condition. But mm-hmm. the subset of fibromyalgia, because fibromyalgia is not a specific diagnosis, but diagnosis of exclusion, meaning right. that we rule out everything else and then we throw it in the bucket called fibromyalgia. Like IBS. Yeah. yeah. So exactly. So the fibromyalgia that had inflammation did better with LDN. And that gave me a clue that that, that may be the research. And then another, uh, another condition is the RSD, reflex sympathetic dystrophy, the old name for complex regional pain syndrome. And there are some studies that are not really research studies. They're not but there are observational studies. For patients, um, for people who know what complex region, uh, regional pain syndrome is, it, there's not a lot of tool uh, to tackle this. Right. So what, what I did is I used LDN and other techniques to reprogram the brain and, and also stand down the nervous system. And uh, I've been getting almost 100% response wow. uh, for uh, complex regional pain syndrome, which is really impressive, actually, because they're just not good, reliable, meaning repeatable treatments out there. Yeah. Yeah. There are not many treatments that you can get a hundred percent response rate from. So yeah. if you're getting that, then that's, that's excellent. And, but my, my number of treatment is low, uh, but uh, what I sure. found is yeah. that, that things that work seem uh, are about 70 to 80% reliable in my, that that's, I will keep that. And it, anything that's not that, then set it aside. <laughs> right. Yeah. And for people that, you know, previously when you mentioned ESR, just to clarify, that's erythrocyte sedimentation rate, correct? That's that's the yes. marker for inflammation. Yes. And so you've found that, that that the subset of patients with fibromyalgia that have elevated ESR or in other words, inflammation have seen 
significant benefit from better results from LDN. Yeah, and that was from the Stanford study. And that, that okay. actually was another light bulb moment yeah. for me because then uh, I, can, I can use this for a novel anti-inflammatory related to pain. And then what, what we, we are noticing is that uh, the activation of the glial cells, prevention, preventing the glial cells to uh, be activated means it's also anti-inflammatory. Yeah. So for yes. me, uh, post-sympathetic uh, neuralgia, trigeminal neuralgia, idiopathic and cancer-related neuropathy are, I think, all fair game for low-dose naltrexone. Yeah, absolutely. I'm also thinking about Hashimoto's and the neuroinflammation of that course, it causes and of the course. glial cell activation. So, so many uses for it that we can um, look at. So what I want to ask you, which is the, the very interesting question now that we spoke at length about the science behind it and the effectiveness of it and all the studies. And so when we have this kind of conventional medicine mainstream system that deals so much with inflammation, with autoimmune conditions, with pain, what do you find is the biggest hesitation for something like low-dose naltrexone coming up and the maybe the hesitation to use it more because we know that it's it's cost effective. Mm -hmm. There are very little to no side effects, like you mentioned, um, uh, other than early on. And, you know, it's, it's, so it, it's a very effective medication potentially. And so why is there a significant hesitation from someone in the mainstream for low-dose naltrexone use? I think it has to do uh, with the fact you know, the, so much of the medicine is uh, run by the insurance medical system, health system complex. Mm -hmm. uh, and, yeah. you know, we, we the in integrative functional medicine, lifestyle medicine practitioners are sh kind of shut out of that market unless you take insurance. Right. But, and in this case, the medications are covered by insurance. Low-dose naltrexone, because it's co compounded in pharmacy, compounding pharmacy, I don't think I've had one patient that said that they have a compounding pharmacy benefit. Right. So uh, I think that's one of the ways that the patients thought uh, that it's an impediment for patient. And I think it's an impediment for physicians because physicians are, who operate in the system, who is used to thinking that everything is covered benefit mm -hmm. to suggest to a patient that it's not a covered benefit is a difficult, more, more difficult conversation. And I think so to some uh, point, we have that and uh, with supplements too, because it's not a covered benefit. What they don't understand is that medications may be covered benefit, depending on what insurance they have, medications can still cost a lot of money. And in the long right. run, this is cheaper, but you know, uh, it's just habit and they feel uncomfortable, I think. That's discomfort. Right. Right. And even if it's covered, you know, it's still at the end of the day coming out of the patient's pocket, right. just like everything else is. And so, and I'm also curious to know what you feel about physicians, let's say pain management specialists or anyone else that might be listening that has a hesitation from the perspective of maybe they haven't heard too much of the science. Maybe they don't have a strong belief that it works. What can you say to them to try to convince them to at least give this? Um, you know, the safe medication, a chance? <clears throat> well, for neuropathy, I think it's a no-brainer because we don't really have good tools to treat neuropathy. We have medications like uh, pregabalin, gabapentin, uh, and overall, uh, it may have some effect, but th those are not benign medication. 
Uh, there, there are serious side effects associated with those. And I think that because there's no effective treatment for neuropathies, I think that LDN is, you know, we, look, we always look at what's the worst that can happen and, and right. not much. Uh, and what's the best that can happen? You know, the patient can be cured of trigeminal neuralgia, which is a big deal. Yeah. Same thing with uh, post-herpatic neuropathy and mm-hmm. uh, other types of uh, neuropathies. Right. I think, you know, LDN for me is one of those very interesting um, case studies where in the conventional medicine world, you kind of have these categories of people, these camps based on what they're taught and based on their, mm-hmm. uh, you know, their exposure in medical school and residency and in their clinical practice. And so even though it's a medication, so no one can say that, hey, it's, it's a supplement, it's a natural treatment, whatever, it is a, it is a prescription medication, yet there, still be that, there, there will still be that hesitation because it hasn't kind of been taught to them. It hasn't been that popular mainstream medication that a lot of physicians use, and so they will have their hesitations to using it. A lot of people, you know, I, I'm in some of these uh, Facebook groups with the, the low-dose naltrexone groups that is like 40,000, 50,000 people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who are talking about their experiences on low-dose naltrexone mm-hmm. each and every day. And it's just fascinating to see the number of people that have found benefit with it. But some of the hesitations they get is that they take their, the, for example, the, the studies to their physician, their rheumatologist, their gastroenterologist, whoever they're going to, and they get shut down and kind of blown off that, no, we're not going to be prescribing this. Or someone hears the, 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 the word naltrexone and they immediately think mm-hmm. opioid. you're t- talking about <laughs> opioid yeah. and this could apply to a pharmacy as yeah. well. And so there's this like, let's not touch naltrexone. Maybe, you know, even if we call it something else, I think it could be more effective because you, you put naltrexone in the, in the word. So I just find that fascinating where there's this you know, you have to first have that open-mindedness and when mm-hmm. you have that open-mindedness, then you can start to look at the research in an unbiased way as much as possible and then see how it, effective it can be, hear all these stories from these patients that have found benefit with it, and then potentially change your practice model a little bit so you can incorporate this because right now it's primarily being used in the alternative, functional, and integrative world. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's so much scope for it in the world of pain management, in the world of autoimmune disease that are that is being treated by conventional mm-hmm. physicians. And so, you know, I just hope that we can create the more awareness about it, more people to, you know, like I, I'm coming from the conventional world in terms of my training, but I've had this open-mindedness to be able to, uh, you know, to see its benefits, even though I was never taught it in residency mm-hmm. or medical school, right? And so I think that more people like that just need a push in that direction to be able to see that. And if they do, then hopefully we can benefit a lot more people. So that's why conversations like this is so effective in, in getting to those healthcare professionals and to the patients about uh, this, this medication. I, I agree. Uh, I'm very uh, grateful. The LDN has changed my uh, practice and most yeah. of my practice, uh, which I'm developing a virtual integrative medicine consultation practice for Georgia, Florida, and Texas, the focus is um, really on conditions can be improved by LDN. So it's almost like an LDN practice. It's uh, even though it's integrated medicine practice because an LDN combines really well with lifestyle medicine, which uh, now right. I have really converted most of my 
uh, functional medicine, integrative medicine to more of a lifestyle medicine practice. And the LDN is the uh, is is the probably the only medication that I prescribe because I think there's a value in medication, but let other doctors who specialize in prescribing medications handle that. And then I try to right. reverse uh, things that can be reversed with uh, lifestyle and LDN. Right. You know, diet, lifestyle, and something like LDN can be so effective in helping people with these complex conditions. Mm -hmm. And so, and we haven't talked about cancer. So maybe we can do that another time. <laughs> yeah, we can do that. Or you can mention that briefly. We certainly have a good time to talk about it. Yeah. So the cancer is a little tricky because in the U United States of America, that uh, I, I, even it's almost like a law that cancer can only be treated with chemotherapy, surgery, or radiation therapy. Anything else um, is not looked kindly by the uh, conventional not medical approved. system. Yeah. So it's very interesting because uh, the original study by Dr. Uh, Zagon uh, and Dr. Bihari is that they had a mouse that they injected, I think it was a lymphoma, and that then the mouse develops uh, lymphoma and dies. So they divided the mouse into two groups. One, uh, they injected beta endorphin, and then the other one, saline, and then they gave them lymphoma. So the saline mouse all died. The LDN mouse, 50% did not develop cancer, the lymphoma, and the 50% lived with lymphoma. So the, then there was one-time injection, and from there, it was surmised that LDN, which will increase the beta endorphins, will be useful for treating cancer. So Dr. Bihari uh, started, he's a pioneer in LDN, started treating patients with HIV, but then moved on to treating patients with cancer. Now, after 40 years or so, we have now patients, uh, doctors uh, like um, Dr. Bergson in New Mexico, who has a protocol. He, he has an IV injection of alpha lipoic acid, which lowers blood sugar combined with low-dose naltrexone, combined with lifestyle and supplements that have reliable, meaning repeatable results with end-stage pancreatic cancer patients surviving wow. in two years, which is really amazing. Unheard because of. Yeah. the stage four pancreatic cancer patients, the survival rate anticipated is less, about six months or less plus minus. But these patients are lasting longer. So I have recommended, and 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 having have worked in cancer centers and academic centers, what I tell them is that if you're stage one and two and even three, if there's evidence, go with the evidence. If you're stage four and there's no more evidence, right. then use all the tools. And, and usually oncologists, uh, when they realize that there's no more reliable tools they can offer, there's always more things they can do, but they're not evidence-based outcome-based that they are just contributing to that more so, chemotherapy yeah and ldn combined with other uh treatments that increase endorphins at least in my practice i've seen patients lives lengthened which which is fantastic wow that's fascinating yeah. I, I don't say it cures cancer but i think that it has a role especially in stage four uh mm. cancer patients to because md anderson says that uh, they want to turn cancer into chronic disease I think LDN with some of the other endorphin increasing treatments have a role right. for stage four cancer patients. And if it is good for stage four cancer patients, it may also be useful for uh, all cancer patients.
That's very fascinating. Is there any cancer aside from pancreatic that you know that's in the literature that it's been helpful for? Or you know, the main issue is that uh, a lot of these trials um, it's, uh, are not randomized control trials. Uh, they 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 are more case. You know, he's in case series. So as you as a scientist, you're aware that. You know, the process of science is, uh, it takes a while. Like one of my teachers who taught me how to treat dry mouth, xerostomia, it took probably m almost 30 years for it to start from a protocol that he developed, case uh, study, case series study, to recently completed MD Anderson uh, supported three multi-center trial study, which confirmed its effect. So you almost need the three decades to make that happen unless you're in the right place, right time with right uh, resources. Yeah, it's, it's so time consuming and yeah. uh, money, the money yeah. involved as yeah. well. So that's very fascinating on the cancer aspect. And so, so where can someone who is looking for more information on LDN or you know, the, the resources that you have, like I know you have a book of, for L, an LDN book, which I'll link to, um, but where can people generally find more information on LDN? I think, um, you know, Google is a great place. Uh, Scholar.google.com is a great place because that pulls the studies. Or another place that I recommend is these LDN groups. Uh, I think the most, um, one of the biggest and more evidence-based is the, the LDN research uh, group that you can, uh, people can look for the website or LDN Research Trusting. Uh, it, it, you can uh, Google it. Yeah. You can go to the Facebook, join the Facebook. And just, you know, this is uh, buyer beware. Uh, a lot of people are not, they're not professionals. They're uh, users who have uh, uh, experience. Just don't take it as the truth. Uh, take everything with a grain of salt, including studies. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll link to those, um, the website and to the group. So people have access to that. But this is such a fascinating conversation. Thank you for giving us an insight into your experience and expertise on this topic. And we really value all the information that you provided. Well, I'll thank you for the opportunity, Dr. Arthur. All right. Absolutely. Thank you. If you liked this episode, please share with your friends and family, and please remember to subscribe so we can share this message with as many people as possible.